If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 661. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, click on that little heart underneath the video, the super thanks button. If you want more of this and you want to help contribute to the show, that helps keep the podcast free of charge. I do appreciate every little dollar you send my way. Also, you can go to McClanahanAcademy.com. You can enroll there free of charge, and you can buy courses. And, of course, that keeps the podcast free of charge. If you're listening to this before July 5th, 2022, I do have my latest course, Reading Abraham Lincoln, on sale. But you got to be on my email list to get the coupon. So if you're on my email list, get on that. You just go to BrianMcClanahan.com, B-R-I-O-M, McClanahan.com. Give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook. And a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. And that's how you get on the email list. And of course, once you do that, you're going to get those coupons. And so it's a great way to support the show and get great content on the back end, too. It's a win win for you. Also, you can click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. Share it around on social media. That's how you get people interested in the show. And it is July 4th. It's Independence Day. Happy Independence Day, everybody. Um, it is a big day in American history. And it's a it's a day we should all celebrate because of that theory or that theory or that practice of independence, I should say. Not theory of independence, but practice of independence, right? It's we are celebrating secession today. And so we're at 246 years of this. And uh, I mean, you can make a case that you know, independence is already there in 1775. But in the celebration of the Declaration, we're at 246 years. In four years, we're going to revisit the Declaration. We're going to revisit Independence Day at the 250th anniversary. And so I thought it would be fun today to go back to 1976. July 4th, 1976, and talk about a speech Gerald Ford gave on that day. And he gave it at Independence Hall, which is the Philadelphia State House or Pennsylvania State House, on July 4th, 1776. And I find this speech fascinating for several reasons. One, you can certainly see the proposition nation myth at work here. And it's a confusing speech in a lot of ways. There's a mix of things in this. It's like Ford, they, they cobbled a lot of things together. And if you go out and read the papers, the Gerald Ford papers, and you read all the background information that led into the speech and and some of the things that were said and what Ford should say and preliminary speeches and drafts and other things, it's clear that people were trying to ensure that Ford could be something to everybody. And I think that's the real problem with American politics now. you got to be something to everybody. Now, we've seen a lot of important July 4th speeches over the years. Or, or presentations or messages. One of the most important, of course, is Abraham Lincoln's July 4th, 1861 message to Congress, which I cover in reading Abraham Lincoln. But we also had, of course, a very famous July 4th oration on by Daniel Webster, who talked about secession. 
And in the next class we have coming out at McClanahan Academy, Copperheads, I go through a very important July 4th speech by Franklin Pierce, which is dramatically different than what you would hear from Abraham Lincoln just a couple of years before that, and in many ways dramatically different from what you'd hear from Gerald Ford on July 4th, 1976. Franklin Pierce, of course, former president. Ford was president at the time. Ford assumed the office when Richard Nixon resigned. He had been vice president a very short period of time, was a majority leader for, for, a, for a spell in the, uh, in the Congress. Republicans did not control the Congress, but he was majority leader, and then, of course, elevated to vice president, and then ultimately president of the United States. Interesting about Ford, you know, he, was, he lived in a modest little brick home uh, when he became president. Uh, he was um, he was not living in in, in you know, the elaborate vice presidential quarters uh, when he became president. So for a very short period of time, he they, Nixon was still moving out. He couldn't move into the White House, and so the the executive mansion became this two story brick home in Northern Virginia, um, which is still privately owned. I mean, so if you if the person that owns that house actually owns for at one, at one, was at one time the executive mansion of the United States. It's pretty cool. I'm sure that's a good selling point when they want to get when they want to offload it in the future. But um, Gerald Ford gave this speech, and um, I'm going to go through it because it shows you number one where we were in 1976, almost 50 years ago, and how much has changed in 50 years. But also. Um, where Republicans are and conservatives are in this very confused situation. And it has all the obligatory uh, you know, references. It's got George Washington, it's got Abraham Lincoln, it's got Franklin Roosevelt. He, he's, he's calling back to all these great presidents. It's got Jefferson in it, it's got John Adams. So it's a celebration of American government in many ways. But Ford also makes it a celebration of this proposition nation and a celebration, in some ways, of limited government. I mean, it's, it's strange what this speech has in it. That's why I want to cover it. Here we are. I mean, I, I do this. I'll do this a lot with modern speeches. But when I say modern, you know, in the last few years. But this is nearly 50 years old. And it's such an interesting speech, I thought we had to do it. So July 4th, Independence Day. It's a nice little, little uh, you know, historical uh, vignette here on uh, what was going on that day. And there's there's video of this, right? So this is the cool thing about when you get into the 20th century, of course, and here we are in 1976, there's video of Ford giving this speech at uh, the Pennsylvania State House, Independence Hall. And uh, the, the type of celebration we had at uh, Independence Hall in 1976, I don't think we'll see again. Now, on the 250th anniversary, it depends on who's in the executive mansion. If it's, if it's Joe Biden still, you can think that the entire speech is going to be proposition nation garbage. If it's someone like, um, you know, Trump or Ron DeSantis, wherever the Republicans decide to nominate for president, um, I think that you're going to see a different kind of speech, though uh, they're still going to use some of the same language. This is the thing. This is my critique of the proposition nation. You're just giving lip service to the left and you're allowing them a foot in the door. You're cracking the door. That's the exact wrong thing to do. And, of course, Ford does that here. So, uh, he says, On Washington's birthday in 1861, a fortnight after six states had formed a confederacy of their own. Now, aha! Gerald Ford is saying that we officially had a confederacy. Now, Abraham Lincoln never said that. But Gerald Ford, 
here on July 4th, 1976, is saying, well, the, the southern states had already formed their confederacy. They already had it. He said, Abraham Lincoln came here to Independence Hall knowing that in 10 days he would face the cruelest national crisis of our 85-year history. Quote, I am filled with deep emotion, he said, at finding myself standing here in the place where collected together the wisdom, the patriotism, the devotion to principle which sprang the institutions under which we live. Ford says, today we all, we can all share these simple, noble sentiments. Like Lincoln, I feel both pride and humility, rejoicing and, and reverence as I stand in the place where two centuries ago the United States of America was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Aha! So, um, Ford has just codified the proposition nation myth. Now, of course, Lincoln had done this long before this, right? I mean... Just a little over 100 years before this, Lincoln had had, uh, had come up with the Proposition Nation and the Gettysburg Address, but he'd also talked about it in other speeches, as I cover again in Reading Abraham Lincoln. And this was something the abolitionists, of course, have been doing. Almost immediately after the ink had dried on the, on the Declaration, they started running around saying these things. But, of course, most Americans didn't believe it. In fact, the Proposition Nation was seen as alien to what Americans were doing. Now, people talked about it, certainly. But in terms of this proposition that all men are created equal, and it's, it's how you determine what that term equal means is the real issue here. But Gerald Ford, 1976, gives, drops this line and then lets it hang there for a little while. Now, he talks a lot about liberty. He talks about independence in this speech. He's essentially acknowledged the Confederacy is existing. In fact, the Ford and Carter administrations are both instrumental in providing pardons to Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. Now you can say, well, because they provided a pardon, that admits they committed treason against the United States. Well, they never said they committed treason. In fact, this is why Davis, I mean, by taking a pardon, you say that, in essence, you, what you did was illegal. And, of course, he wasn't going to do that. But Ford and Carter both recognized the importance of these individuals in American history and thought that they were worthy of, of respect. Now, we would never get that. In fact, what you would see in a speech from, say, someone like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or somebody on the left would be a complete demonization of those people, a complete distortion of what we would have had in 1976. This is still very much a reconciliationist speech in 1976. So much has changed in 50 years. Ford continues, From this small but beautiful building, then the most imposing structure in the colonies, came the two great documents that continued to supply the moral and intellectual power of the American adventure and self-government. Before me is the great bronze bell that joyously rang out the news of the birth of our nation from the steeple of the State House. It was never intended to be a church bell, yet a generation before the great events of 1776, the elected assembly of Pennsylvania ordered it to be inscribed with this biblical verse, quote, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Now, um, again, the American adventure in self-government. He does, actually Ford does a pretty nice job here tying in American political institutions to the British antecedents. He does it. And, um, you again, you would not hear this kind of speech in someone on the left, and I'm not even certain someone like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis would give you very much 
something very different from what you would hear on the left. It would still have a whole lot of proposition nation in it. Ford says the American settlers had many, many hardships, but they had more liberty than any other people on earth. Well, that's debatable, right? Did they have more liberty than the uh, than the British, I mean, they were British. They had more liberty than those living in on on the island of Great Britain, Great Britain, England. Uh, did they have more liberty than those people or any other colonies that the British Empire oversaw? I mean, if you'd said they were just the American settlers and that they had more liberty because they're in America, that would be a little bit of a misstatement. I think that you could say the English themselves have more liberty than any people in the world at that point. That Anglo-American liberty is important. He says, that was what they came for and what they meant to keep. So they came here to have more liberty. They didn't have enough liberty back in the, on the island. Um, now, if you're talking about religious liberty, the Quakers, the Catholics who, who showed up here, the Baptists, some of the other dissenting, the, the pilgrims, some of the dissenting sects, Certainly, we're looking for more liberty than what they have, but that's a very small percentage of the population who showed up. In fact, you could say that a lot of the people that showed up here were simply looking to emulate what they had in, in Great Britain. They just couldn't do it there. They just wanted it here. They wanted some economic freedom. They wanted to make a way for themselves. The colonies offered that. And a lot of people, of course, showed up selling themselves into, into slavery. The indentured servants, they had less liberty here than what they had in Great Britain. So, I mean, again... All these platitudes, you could make exceptions to all these things, but I would say that overall, Americans had no more liberty here than what they had in Great Britain uh, in, in the period leading up to independence until you started getting to the uh, end of salutary neglect when the parliament was uh, running roughshod over the colonies and they couldn't have their own legislatures. Now, you could say they had less liberty then. But certainly in the period leading up to 1765, say, there was... Very little difference in the colonies compared to the to the island of Great Islands of Great Britain, um, unless you look at religion, and that would be the only thing that you could maybe draw a distinction. The verse from Leviticus and the, on the Liberty Bear refers to the ancient Jewish year of jubilee, and every fiftieth year the jubilee restored the land and the equality of persons that prevailed when the children of Israel entered the land of promise, and both gifts came from God, as the jubilee regularly reminded them. That equality of persons. Again, we're going back to this idea of equality here. Our founding fathers knew their Bibles as well as their Blackstone. That's an interesting statement. In fact, on this, they, they note Blackstone because most people don't know who Blackstone is. But of course, the founding generation were certainly uh, religious people. Even those that were you know shaded towards deism knew organized Christianity because they had grown up in it. And yes, they did know their Blackstone. They understood the English common law tradition. They understood English liberties. They understood all of those things very well. So that's not a that's not a bad statement. I think Ford was correct in saying that. They boldly reversed the age-old political theory that kings derived their powers from God and asserted that both powers and unalienable rights belong to the people as direct endowments from their creator. So this is going into the natural law, right? The founding generation believed in natural law. And I think um, many of them did. Um, you could say Catholics have believed this for a long period of time. But uh, this divine right of kings, the English had already really knocked that down with the English Bill of Rights. 
there was some divine right of kings. Uh, the French certainly believed it. You certainly had it in other parts of Europe as well. But uh, when you look at uh, the, the English model, the British model of government by the early 18th century and how the English would look around for replacing their monarchs. By this point, we're at George III in, in 1776, and the Georges have been brought over from Germany. But the Parliament still had a tremendous amount of power. That was because of the English Bill of Rights, and they were still working on enhancing that power. But George III, in so many ways, was powerless to do much of anything. So the king had already been knocked down, even in Great Britain, by 1776. Furthermore, they declared that governments are instituted among men to secure their rights and to serve their purpose. And governments continue only so long as they have the consent of the governed. Now, that, that's, a, that's a pretty strong statement, an independent statement, right? Governments continue only so long as they have the consent of the government. What if they don't consent? How do you measure consent? How do you measure any of this stuff? So that's a pretty strong statement from Gerald Ford. And I, uh, I'm not certain that any modern speech would have something like that in it. Again, this is 50 years ago. With George Washington already commanding the American Continental Army in the field, the Second Continental Congress met here in 1776, not to demand new liberty, but to regain long-established rights which were being taken away from them without their consent. A beautiful statement. That's exactly what happens. This is why I say this is a confusing speech in some ways. There are some really hard-hitting truths to it. And then there's the proposition nation stuff. It, it's, it's a speech that doesn't really know which lane it wants to sit in. Now, we know, again, if the left gave the speech today, they wouldn't make a statement like that. Unless they're going to talk about you know LGBTQ or uh, you know Roe v. Wade or something like that. In fact, you see that the left was going ballistic on social media because... Uh, they weren't going to celebrate the 4th because their liberty was gone. The American Revolution was unique and remains unique in that it was fought in the name of the law as well as liberty. At the start, the Declaration of Independence proclaimed the divine source of individual rights and the purpose of human government as Americans understood it. That purpose is to secure the rights of the individuals against even government itself. But the Declaration did not tell us how to accomplish this purpose or what kind of government to set up. Again, a very good paragraph. It's a secession document. It's a secession document, a defounding document. There is no principles of government except for the last paragraph. We had independent, 13 independent states. 13 independent states. We didn't have a central authority, though. We had a group of ambassadors meeting in Pennsylvania, but that's it. No central authority. And I think that's something that has to be said. Thirteen independent states, they would form a central authority, very weak central authority, and then they would eventually get the Constitution. He says, first, our independence had to be won. It was not won easily. As the nearby encampment of Valley Forge, the rude bridge at Concord, and the crumbling battlements of Yorktown bear vivid interest. We have heard much, though we cannot hear it too often, about 56 Americans who cast their votes and later signed their names to Thomas Jefferson's ringing declaration of equality and freedom, so movingly read to us this morning by Miss Marian Anderson. Declaration of equality and freedom. What kind of equality? It wasn't it was one line in it. This is the thing. And he, of course, he's talking about equality under the law as British subjects. And the colonists thought they were being treated unequally. But it wasn't some ringing 
declaration of some type of you know proposition of equality. I mean, universal equality. It, it's not what he was going after here. But again, this is a confusing speech. Ford says, do you know what price the signers of that parchment paid for their patriotism, the devotion to principle of which Lincoln spoke? John Hancock of Massachusetts was one of the wealthiest men who came to Philadelphia. Later he stood outside Boston and watched the enemy sweep by. He said, burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar. Altogether, of the 56 men who signed our great declaration, five were taken prisoner, 12 had their homes sacked, two lost their sons, nine died in the war itself. Those men knew what they were doing. In the final stirring words of the Declaration, they pledged to one another our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And when liberty was at stake, they were willing to pay the price. True statement. And these men were willing to put everything on the line for it. I'm not certain most Americans would do that today. He says, We owe a great debt to these founders and to the foot soldiers who followed George Washington into battle after battle, retreat after retreat. But it is important to remember that final success in that struggle for independence, as in the many struggles that have followed, was due to the strength and support of ordinary men and women who were motivated by three powerful impulses, personal freedom, self-government, and national unity. Well, uh, okay. National unity. That's, again, threw that out there. But yes, yeah, self-government is a certain one. The English liberties, that would be personal freedom. So I certainly think people were interested in that. But national unity? That's a strange one. Uh, in fact, you would find that in, in 1776, there wasn't a whole lot of that to go around at times. I mean, there was these colonies or states were still sniping at each other, complaining about one state or the other, and there wasn't really a whole lot of national unity. In fact, it was brought up. Ford says, For all but the black slaves, many of whom fought bravely beside their masters because they also heard the promise of the Declaration. Freedom was won in 1783, but the Loose articles of confederation had proved inadequate in war and were even less effective in peace. Well, that's a, that's a big statement. They were inadequate in war. Did they not win the war? How are they inadequate? Less effective in peace? That's debatable. They certainly didn't have the ability to tax the people directly, and they didn't have the heavy-handed ability that we see with the Constitution, but were they really that ineffective? That's a, that's a loaded question. What I find fascinating, though, is, you know, he has to qualify. Well, except for all the black slaves who did fight uh, bravely beside their masters. You couldn't get away with using language like that today. And uh, Freedom was won in 1783, but their freedom wasn't won. But everybody else's freedom was won. Again, in 1787, representatives of the people and the states met in this place to form a more perfect union, a permanent legal mechanism that would translate the principles and purposes of Jefferson's declaration into effective self-government. Now, that is an incorrect statement, because what you're doing there is saying that the principles of the Declaration, Declaration found their way into the Constitution, which is not true. He just said that the Declaration didn't set up a government, but now it set up a government. This is where the neocons and the Straussians get confused, because it's not really a, a founding document. It's a defounding document, and I know that the American Code of Law, this is what Michael Anton, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, because here it is in the code. The legal code of America. Here's the declaration. That was added later, but the declaration was something different. It was a document of independence. That's it. Not some type of legal governing document at all. 
He says, six signers of the Declaration came back to forge the Constitution, including the Sage of Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin. Jefferson had replaced him as ambassador in Paris. The young genius of the Constitutional Convention was another Virginian, James Madison. The hero of the Revolution, Washington, was called back from Mount Vernon to preside. Seldom in history have the men who made a revolution seen it through, but the United States was fortunate. The result of their deliberations and compromises was our Constitution, which William Gladstone, a great British Prime Minister, called, quote, the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man. The Constitution was created to make the promise of the Declaration come true. So the Constitution was there to make the promise of the Declaration come true. This is, again, where this is a confusing speech. The Declaration was not a protest against government, but against the excesses of government. It prescribed the proper role of government to secure the rights of individuals and to affect their safety and their happiness. In modern society, no individual can do all this alone. So government is not necessarily evil, but a necessary good. It's a necessary good. You see, the Declaration was not a protest against government, but the excesses of government. Well, in some cases, that's true. They were protesting against British abuse of power, parliamentary abuse of power, the, the abuse of power by the king, more importantly than anything else. That's what the, almost the entire Declaration is. The framers of the Constitution feared a central government that was too strong, as many Americans rightly do today. The framers of the Constitution, after the, their experience under the Articles, feared a central government that was too weak, as many Americans rightly do today. They spent days studying all the contemporary governments of Europe and concluded with Dr. Franklin that all contained the seeds of their own destruction. So the framers built something new, drawing upon their English traditions, on the Roman Republic, on the uniquely American institution of the town meeting. To reassure those who felt the original Constitution did not sufficiently spell out the unalienable rights of the Declaration, the first United States Congress added, and the states ratified, the first ten amendments, which we call the Bill of Rights. Ford has to, I mean, notice what Ford's doing here. He does throw in the states ratified, and, you know, he, he says, well, the, uh, the Constitution not sufficiently spell out unalienable rights, so we have the Bill of Rights. This is coming from the Declaration, these unalienable rights. But what was argued is, well, we didn't have to do that in Philadelphia for, for the Constitution in Philadelphia because the states already had their own Bill of Rights, right? So this was already there. See, this kind of centralized national unity, top-down, one-size-fits-all, centralized power view is incorrect with the history of the period. Later, after a tragic fraternal war, those guarantees were ex expanded to include all Americans. Later still, voting rights were assured for women and for younger citizens 18 to 21 years of age. It is good to know that in our lifetime we have taken part in the growth of freedom and in the expansion of equality which began here so long ago. So here's Ford saying these things about you know independence and self-government. And then what you could say is a very leftist statement. This expression, expansion of equality, what does that even mean? This union of... Corrected wrongs and expanded rights has brought the blessings of liberty to, two, to the 215 million Americans, but the struggle for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is never truly won. You might see, I mean, this is something Joe Biden would say today. Each generation of Americans, indeed all of humanity, must strive to achieve these aspirations anew. Liberty is a living flame to be fed, not dead ashes to be revered, even in a bicentennial year. It is fitting that we ask ourselves hard questions even on a glorious day like today. Are the institutions under which we, are, we live working the way they should? 
Are the foundations laid in 1776 and 1789 still strong enough and sound enough to resist the tremors of our times? Are our God-given rights secure? Are hard-won liberties protected? Again, you can see somebody on the left asking that exact same question. Someone like you know Barack Obama or uh, you know, Kamala Harris or some leftist reformer, radical, they could ask these questions. They would answer an affirmative no. You could ask someone on the right and they would say the very same thing in a lot of ways. The very fact that we can ask these questions, that we can freely examine and criticize our society, is cause for confidence itself. Many of the voices raised in doubt 200 years ago served to strengthen and improve the decisions finally made. The American adventure is a continuing process. As one milestone is passed, another is, is cited. As we achieve one goal, a longer lifespan, a literate population, a leadership in world affairs, we raise our sights. As we begin our third century, there is still much to be done. We must increase the independence of the individual and the opportunity of all Americans to attain their full potential. We must ensure each citizen's right to privacy. <laughs> Again, what does that even mean? So Ford is saying this in 1976. What does this right to privacy mean? And where do we find that? And is that a central authority or a state authority? I mean, what's going on here? We must create a more beautiful America, making human works conform to the harmony of nature. We must develop a safer society, so ordered that happiness may be pursued without fear of crime or man-made hazards. We must build a more stable international order, politically, economically, and legally. We must match the great breakthroughs of the past century by improving health and conquering disease. We must continue to unlock the secrets of the universe beyond our planet as well within ourselves. We must work to enrich the quality of American life at work, at play, and in our homes. La, la, la. Uh, so the funny thing about this, of course, is Ford turns this into a policy statement. Now, can you imagine the founding generation saying any of these things? Right? See, the Declaration is the basis of all of this stuff. Space, international order, environmental concerns, Roe v. Wade. It's, it's the basis of all these things, don't you know? So this is why Ford, and I said this is a confusing speech, because he recognizes what Independence Day is really about and then proposes all this stuff, which of course would involve heavy-handed central authority. It is right that Americans are always improving. It is not only right, it is necessary. From need comes action, as it did here in Independence Hall. Those fierce political rivals, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, in their later years carried out a warm correspondence. Well, they were only fierce political rivals while they were involved in American politics. But before that, when they were in, well, I mean, under the U.S. government, before that, they were very good friends. They were good friends during the period where the Declaration was written. And, of course, uh, after they both had retired, they resumed that friendship. And they Jefferson tried earlier, but Abigail Adams blocked it. She didn't like what Jefferson had done to her husband. Both died on the 4th of July, 1826, having lived to see the handiwork of their finest hour endure a full 50 years. They had seen the Declaration's clear call for human liberty and equality arouse the hopes of all mankind. Jefferson wrote to Adams that, quote, even should the cloud of barbarism and despotism again obscure the science of, and libraries of Europe, this country remains to preserve and restore light and liberty to them. Now, you could take that phrase and say Jefferson was an internationalist, Jefferson was an interventionist, Jefferson's a proposition nation guy. Jefferson's just speaking in grand terms here. Maybe America can be this place that people can look to and they can say, wow, you know, this is something very important. Light and liberty. 
Not equality. Notice he didn't say that. Liberty. Liberty. And Jefferson was always a federalist, meaning he believed in a federal republic with a limited central authority. Over a century later, in 1936, Jefferson's dire prophecy seemed about to come true. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, speaking for a mighty nation, reinforced by millions and millions of immigrants who had joined the American adventure, <laughs> was able to warn the new despotisms, quote, we too, born to freedom and believing in freedom, are willing to fight to maintain freedom. We and all others who believe as deeply as we do would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. Now, of course, this is 1936. We hadn't yet gotten five years before World War II. But notice what, what Ford does here. He throws in the throwaway line about immigration. And if you go back and look at the, at the uh, behind-the-scenes activities that led into the speech, this was brought up. We need to talk about immigrants. We need to talk about a nation of immigrants. This needs to happen. You see, what they're trying to do is, this is a spaghetti speech. Throw everything you can. Hope all this stuff sticks. And we're going to, I mean, it's going to try to appeal to everybody, have all the platitudes and slogans and everything else you need to have in here. Uh, you know, harken back to Jefferson and Adams, as I said, and Franklin Roosevelt, Washington and Lincoln. Get all the big names out of the way. Make a policy statement about how liberal you actually are. And you're good to go. Bash the Soviet Union. Bash Hitler, because that's what's happened. The world knows where we stand. The world is as ever conscious of what Americans are doing for better or for worse because the United States today remains the most successful realization of humanity's universal hope. And of course, he's making these statements under the specter of the Cold War. We've got the Soviet Union still out there and it's still pretty nasty. Got that for another decade, a little over a decade. The world may or may not follow, but we lead because our whole history says we must. Liberty is for all men and women as a matter of equal and unalienable right. The establishment of justice and peace abroad will in large measure depend upon the peace and justice we create in our own country, where we still show the way. And the left would say this too. They would say, well, this is true. This is why we have to do X, Y, and Z. You've got to take down Confederate monuments. You've got to, do, got, to take down, got to take down the founding fathers, even though this whole speech is about the founding fathers. You've got to take them down too because they're not really about justice, right? It's not liberty. It's not justice. These people were slave owners. These people were evil people. They have to go. The American adventure begins here with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. It continues in a common conviction that the source of our blessings is a loving God in whom we trust. Therefore, I ask all of the members of the American family, our guests and friends, to join me now in a moment of silent prayer and meditation and gratitude for all that we have received and, are, and to ask continued safety and happiness for each of us and for the United States of America. Thank you and God bless you. So, um, again, an interesting speech, almost 50 years old. I wanted to bring this up because it has so much packed into it in terms of this proposition nation stuff. And, uh, and then, but, uh, you know, kind of a, a bipolar speech because then we have all of the independent stuff and we're reverencing the founding, founding fathers and we've got the actuality of the Confederacy that actually existed. You've got all that wrapped in this thing too. So there's a lot going on here, but this is the kind of confusing speech that we would get. I, I don't know if we would see another speech like this in four years from now. Again, depending on who's in office, if it's Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or someone on the left, you're going to get a speech very different from this criticizing what America's done and how it's never lived up to its, to its promises. And it's going to be 1619 Project Influenced. If it's something like Donald, someone like Donald Trump, you might get a 1776 
Commission report influence speech, which would be entirely different. All right. Went a little long, but um, I wanted to get this in. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. Happy Independence Day. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.